0: Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and tonight we'll consider verses 20 through 21 as we close out this incredible chapter of theology. Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul teaches that all people stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin, because of Adam's sin, or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of Christ's righteous act of obedience. For probably the last time for a while, we have one man disobeyed, resulting in death. One, obeyed, resulting in life. We all start off, from the very first breath we take, being associated with Adam. Everybody's in the same boat when you're born. But then you have a choice whether to stay there or to become associated with Christ. If you're associated with Adam, you're born dead and you stay dead. If you're associated with Christ, you become alive and you receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The two acts, while momentous in their significance, are not equal in power. Christ's act is able to completely overcome the effects of Adam's act. Anyone who receives the gift that God offers in Christ finds security and joy in knowing that the reign of death has been completely and finally overcome by the reign of life and the reign of grace, righteousness, and eternal life. So the great theme of this paragraph or I should say, verses 12 through 21, is that Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. Read along with me in verse 12. Therefore, I'm sorry, that's the wrong chapter. Therefore, just as though, as, as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, that's in verse 12, you see the double dash after that verse. I, I assume in most of your versions, if you don't, there ought to be one there because Paul starts a sentence and doesn't finish it. And what most Greek grammarians, what most, or rather most New Testament scholars believe, is that Paul begins a sentence in verse 12 that ends with a dash and then goes into somewhat of a, of, of a parenthetical explanation in verses 13 through 17, and actually comes back to his subject and finishes this sentence in 5.18. So it would look like this. It's a bit of a tricky sentence, but I hope that will help you. If it helps you in your own per- personal reading, you can skip from the end of verse 12 down to verse 18, just so you don't ignore what's in between. So Paul says that death spread to all men because all sinned. For until, and then in the parenthetical idea, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Which is one of the reasons why I told you I take the federal headship view. That death reigned for all, even, if, even for those who didn't sin in the same way that Adam sinned. Again, the other view that we discussed, the similar view, says that we did sin in the same way. So this is, uh, in, in my view, it's one of the strongest arguments for the fact that Adam represented us. And if we want to complain that that's unfair, which is probably the single most echoed complaint about the federal headship view, just, just demonstrate to me that you've never sinned, <laughs> and then I'll believe that you wouldn't have done the same thing that Adam did fact is, we all know we would have succumbed too. We are no match for Satan, the tempter, when we try to go out on our own. And we've all sinned to prove that we would indeed do that. And for those who are strong Calvinists that say we sin because we're totally depraved, I would say, then show me any believer who hasn't sinned since salvation. And then I would buy that as well. But uh, since we sin even after salvation, even after we have a new nature, which makes it possible for us not to sin, doesn't ensure that we won't sin, but it makes it possible for us not to uh, sin. We still do it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace by the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. That's why we say that Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. That's why we say the two acts, while momentous in their significance, are not equal in power. Christ's act was much more than what Adam's act was. I hope you catch that in your observation of this text. In verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reign through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now that was the parenthetical material. Now in verse 18 we pick up that sentence that was stopped in mid-breath in verse 12. And actually what Paul does is more or less restate it. And he says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. you see what he's doing? Go back to verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man entered into the world. you see that? In verse 18, he picks up the thought again. So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. In verses 18 and 19. As the words, so then, indicate, Paul's not only returning to the thought that he expressed in verse 12, he's summing up the argument that he's expressed from verses 12 all the way to verse 17. The present passage places over against each other one trespass, namely that of Adam, a trespass called the disobedience of the one, and one act or deed of righteousness called the obedience of the one, that one being Jesus Christ. Again, if you get this... And I know we've, we've tried to pound it home to you, but the reason I want to pound it home to you is because I want you to be able to wake up in the middle of the night and be able to understand Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. One person disobeyed, it led to death. Another, The other, last Adam, obeyed, and it led to life. If you get that, you'll get Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 is about your experiential sanctification. Up until now, We've been talking in the book of Romans essentially about our positional sanctification. Something's already happened. But starting in our next session, when we start Romans chapter 6, we're going to come upon an experiential sanctification passage for all the way through 6 through 8. And when we get to that, we're talking about the theology of how you become a mature or maturing believer in Jesus Christ. And that important to you? I hope it is. But if you're going to get that, if that's not going to fly way over your head, you've got to have this framework down. There's a reason why Romans chapter 5 comes before Romans chapter 6. Paul wants you to have this framework, the one and the one, the two representative heads. The fact that you were born dead, but now you're alive. And Paul's going to tell us in Romans chapter 6, so you don't go back to the dead part. It's important. This is not just theoretical theology. This is theology that matters just like all theology does to the way that you live tonight and tomorrow and to the next day. We can understand that one trespass resulted for all men in condemnation. I hope that we can understand that now, that Adam represented us, we died in Adam. We're born dead. But what does Paul mean when he states that also for all men one act of righteousness resulted in justification of life? Is he speaking of universalism here? Does he mean because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross, and that penalty was paid for all men, and then therefore all are saved? No, that's an improper application of the doctrine of unlimited atonement. Not at all. It, it doesn't demand that. Paul is not arguing for universalism. And I want to cover that or remind you of this in three points. Paul has made it very clear in previous passages that salvation is for those who trust Jesus Christ. In 1.16, and in chapter 3, verse 21 through 25, he makes this clear. So again, there's a reason why Romans chapter 3 comes before Romans chapter 5. That's why we don't begin the study of Romans in Romans chapter 5 or 6 or 8 or 12. We wouldn't do that to any other text. We wouldn't read John Grisham that way. Why do we want to read Paul that way? You start at the beginning and work your way through his argument. So he's already made it clear that we're justified by faith. So only those who exercise faith are justified. Second, he's emphasized this also in the very context. When he says those those alone who receive the overflowing fullness of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. So... And the third point, in a passage which is similar to Romans 5.18, written by the same human author, but of course they share the same divine author, Paul says that, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Here it's clearly stated that the all... Uh, or who will be made alive are those who are Christ's, and that is those who belong to him. So don't get too confused by the many and the all terminology in Romans chapter 5. He's already stated the parameters for our understanding of that terminology earlier on. All are born dead. And all who trust Jesus Christ, in that sense, all are justified. Now for the final two Send us two phrases, two verses of this incredible uh, paragraph. Paul says, And the law came in, and the law came in, that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That, as sin reigneth in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope. If you're reading this carefully, I hope a huge big red flag just went up on your antenna when Paul says, and the law came in that the transgression might increase. What in the world is going on there? Does this mean that God actually instituted something that would make us sin more? I thought God hated sin. I thought sin grieved the Holy Spirit and quenched the Holy Spirit. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Well, no, not so fast, Macduff. I think if we look at it very closely, then it'll make perfect sense to us as we close this paragraph out. Now, remember, Paul has been speaking about Adam and Christ, two representative heads. As we've discussed over the last few weeks, Adam disobeyed a specific command. Remember our study back in Genesis chapter 3. It was a specific, one specific command that Adam disobeyed. In fact, apparently, there was only one thing that he could do wrong, and that was the one thing that he did. And it happened long before the Mosaic Law was given. Remember that a large, not I don't think it's the majority, but I think it's a large number of Paul's original readers were Jewish readers. There's some debate about that. But um, I would follow Harold Holer at Dallas Theological Seminary in saying that the majority of the of the people that Paul was preaching to in Rome were Gentile believers. But nevertheless, there was enough of them there that he makes he, he makes several references to the Mosaic Law. It, the Mosaic Law came at least twenty five hundred years after Adam sinned. I, I'd say that's at least maybe a little bit more. Even before Moses was given the law at Sinai, there was law. So even before Moses got the big L law, there was little l law. And 5.13 has shown that. For until the law, sin was in the world. 2.15 showed it too. And Paul says the law was written on their hearts. Remember that phrase. The unbeliever, the believer alike, have written on their heart the law of God in the sense of knowing what's right and what's wrong. There are certain things, no matter what culture you go to, it is wrong. Remember there was a study that was done of a culture, it was a PBS special, where they searched out a culture that did not believe in any right or wrong whatsoever. I believe it was either in, in Australia or it was in Africa. And they did a, an extended PBS study on this, but at a conference a couple of years ago in North Carolina, I actually heard the man speak who, would, who had done this research, telling us that his research was grossly misrepresented on the PBS special. He said, far from them not having any idea of right from wrong, because it, it showed that, that this one chief had taken many, many wives for himself, and that In other words, polygamy was okay. He just kind of grabbed whoever else's wife that they they wanted to grab. Contrary to the the way they left the show, as if there was no problem with that, uh, men were killing each other over the fact that their wives were being taken. So, see, they thought it was wrong. Somebody thought it was wrong. Now, the chief might not have, but somebody thought it was wrong for the chief to take his wife because they either did or, or tried to kill him because of that. It doesn't matter who you are. There are things written on your heart. We call it natural law. There are things written on the heart that we know are right and that we know are wrong. J. Boozicevsky at the University of Texas is one of the greatest scholars we have living today speaking about natural law from a theistic and Christian perspective at the University of Texas in their government and philosophy department. There's a man named Francis Beckwith at Baylor doing the same thing. There's also another man at University of Texas, I believe his name is Kuntz, doing the same thing. So while there are problems out there, there are Christians in these philosophy departments as well. And we need to be praying for them. Bujisky talks quite a bit with his students about natural law. So even before the Moses got the law at Sinai, there was law. But at Sinai, the Mosaic Law came in, Paul says in verse 20, in order that the transgression might increase. That was the divine intention in giving the Mosaic Law. The law has increased the trespass. It has not erased it. It has not eased it. It did not neutralize it, as many of the Jews of Paul's time apparently believed. They believed the law made things, uh, that there was less sin because of the law. Paul says, no, sin increased because of the law. So now we're we're circling back to this theological problem. Why did God give us something that increased sin when he hates sin? As you might have already guessed, uh, this does not mean that God became the cause of sin's increase. It means that it was God's will and purpose that in the light of his demand of perfect love, which is the way Christ summarized the law, the law boils down to loving God and loving your neighbor, and that's not incredibly different from the New Testament way of life either. We're not under the Mosaic law, but, but the bottom line is very similar. Man's awareness of sin might become sharpened. So because of the Mosaic law, Our awareness of what was sinful became sharpened. Let me explain it this way. The law, I mean the Mosaic law, acts as a magnifying glass. An instrument of magnification, whether it be a set of eyeglasses or a microscope or a simple magnifying glass, does not actually increase the number of impurities on a particular surface. I remember when I was well, 25, thirty years ago now, when I was in microbiology, we would uh, did various experiments, and one of the experiments that we had to do was go around and, and take various surfaces and take swabs off them. And then we did a culture and you see how many it, it, it'll gross you out, how many micro or microorganisms and bacteria are everywhere. You know how we say that that floor is so clean you could eat off of it. Any volunteers to do that? I don't care how... Anybody going to... Yeah, one. You know that? You know why? Because of the five-second rule, right? If it drops on the floor and doesn't stay there more than five seconds, it's okay. But I'm not, I'm not talking about five seconds now. We're talking about if it stays there for a while. Even Michael wouldn't do it. But yet, the floor looks clean, doesn't it? It looks spotless. But we all would hesitate, no matter how clean the floor looks, to get a knife and fork and go clean it up like our family pet would, right? Why? Because we know there's stuff down there that we can't see. Now, if we put a microscope to it, we would see all kinds of little varmints running around, many of which would make us ill if we consume them into our bodies. Did the fact that we put a microscope on that floor add any microorganisms to the floor no did it allow us to see what was really on the floor yes that's what the mosaic law did it didn't make people any more sinful but what it did was it showed them it put a magnifying glass upon their lives and demonstrated to them what really did offend the holiness of God now before they had the law written on their hearts And some people might get a a specific understanding that they had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but others might not have, particularly some of those hard-nosed Jewish people that Paul was one of and the people he was talking to. See, it's not just a, a casual, faint understanding that maybe I might have not done my best that makes me come to Christ and seek the forgiveness of my sins in eternal life. It's understanding that I have fallen short of the glory of God. That, I'm, that I've been born under sin, that I'm totally depraved, that I can do nothing to gain God's favor. That's where the law came in. So it's not as though the law increased the number of bugs on the floor. The law magnified what was there and let us see it more clearly. That's what Paul means when he says the law came in, or came in beside that the transgression Might increase. The word came in is the way that that particular phrase is phrased in Greek is only used one, I think, one other time. And it's not a real positive word, the way that it's used. But it, and it doesn't mean that it came in in a sinister way or a a bad way. That's the way the word is used in another context. But it means it just, it came alongside. We already had the law written on our hearts. And that was, was going along just fine. But it wasn't strong enough to have people understand just how condemned they were. The Mosaic Law came up right alongside that and changed everything. Now you can't see yourself in the mirror of the Mosaic Law and say, "No, I think uh, I'm okay. Not the most moral person in the world, but certainly not the least. I don't think I've really done anything to offend. Maybe I didn't please God, but really didn't do anything to offend Him. The Mosaic Law will show you. Impossible. Nobody The standard of the Mosaic law was so high, nobody could keep it. Well, the reason for that is God wanted to put a magnifying glass on our lives, on the lives of the Jews, and demonstrate that. When we say we have no law in the New Testament, that is a gross misstatement. There is law all over the New Testament. We're not under the Mosaic law, particularly with all its ceremonial law and the ritual law. But certainly we are under law. We, we have a set of rules and regulations that God set forth. And to say that we're under grace but we're not under law is okay if you understand we're not under the Mosaic law. But to say we have no set of rules, that's wrong. That's called antinomianism. And a lot of times dispensationalists, which I am and I assume you are too, we understand that there's a distinction at the very least between the church and Israel. That, we're not, that the church in Israel are not one and the same. Many times dispensationalists, because we say we're not under the Mosaic Law, we're misunderstood by, by people thinking that we're not under any law whatsoever. We're a law unto ourselves, we can just do whatever we want to, and some dispensationalists act that way. My advice is to steer real clear of them. Don't even be associated with any dispensationalist who's abusing and misusing and has not properly interpreted the scriptures in light of a dispensational framework and says, I have no rules and regulations on me. That's what, that's what imperatives are in the New Testament that, that Will talked about on Saturday. Those are command words. When God gives a command, that's a law. Thank you. Okay. That's something you're supposed to do. It's not optional. You, you may figure when your uh, husband tells you something to do, uh, to do, it's optional. Sometimes people do. <laughs> When God tells you something to do, it's not optional. You do it, or you have just sinned. Now, so the law acts as a magnifying glass. In addition, this increase in the knowledge of sin was very necessary. We would ask rhetorically, why, once more? And it is because it will prevent a person from imagining that in his own power... He can overcome sin. The more an individual, in light of God's law, begins to see his own sinfulness and weakness, the more also he will thank God for the display of his grace in Jesus Christ. That's been one of the overriding messages that I've been attempting to teach in Romans 5, 12 through 21. The reason we need to learn this is because we need to see how exceedingly sinful we are before we can appreciate how incredibly gracious God is. You'll never move to the place of maturity that you want to be without an understanding of God's grace. And you'll never understand God's grace until you understand our own depravity. Where sin increases, grace increases also. Paul says, And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. These two forces, sin and grace, are not equal in power. On the contrary, grace not only pardons sin, as verse 21 shows, it does far more. It brings everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Do you Remember in our study of justification back in Romans 3 and then the examples we showed in Romans 4, we said that justification was not merely the subtraction of sin. It's the addition of righteousness. Now Paul has expounded upon that by saying that where sin existed, where sin increased, grace went up to grace went up's sin. So it is not just the subtraction justification is not just the subtraction of sin. It is the addition of righteousness. We're not just neutral when we trust Christ. We're now in a positive state, and that is. Also very important for us to understand before we can see what's going on in chapter 6 through 8. So that, in verse 21, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul has now summed it all up in these last two verses. Again, I hope you can see now how an understanding of Romans 5, 12 through 21 is crucial to understanding experiential sanctification, which will come up in Romans 6 through 8. Verse 21 once more. This verse gives the purpose of the superabounding grace of verse 20 and also brings Paul's comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ to a final conclusion. He returns one last time to the language of comparison that's dominated this discussion. The phrase is just as and so also. He picks up some of the key terms like sin, rain, death, grace, righteousness, eternal life, and Jesus Christ. Those were the key terms throughout the whole uh, paragraph. And now he's summed them up all in the end. To summarize now, verses 12, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. In the sentence that Paul began in verse 12 and returned to in verse 18, completed in verse 18, the last part of it, the apostle states, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, and if we went to verse 18 and picked up the thought, that is, as one trespass, trespass resulted in condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness resulted for all men in justification issuing in life. Adam by means of his transgression of the divine command involved all mankind in his sin and guilt. Every mankind, even little children, even innocent children that have not had an opportunity to sin yet are still born spiritually dead. Adam was the representative head of the human race, and it wasn't just sin that came in, it was, sin. It was death because of sin. The reality of sin did not depend on the establishment of the Mosaic law, even during the period between Adam and Moses. Sin was taken into account, for God's law had been written in men's hearts. This explains, while it is right to state that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though even over those who did not sin by transgressing an express command, as did Adam. In this connection, Paul calls Adam a type of him who was to come. So, Adam is the type, Jesus is the anti-type. Adam being considered head of fallen humanity, Jesus the head of redeemed humanity. In the rest of the chapter... Paul shows that all men were included in Adam, so also all men, that is all who belong to Jesus Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentiles, or who have exercised faith, are in association with Jesus Christ. Again, the great theme of this paragraph is that Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. So when we move to the experiential sanctification that begins like this, what shall we say then, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? I hope you already know the answer to that question without looking at verse 2. No, because you're not understanding what Paul said if that's the conclusion that you come to. But that will be an exciting couple months that we spend in those chapters, and we'll begin that next time.